There's enough shoe companies in the world. There's no reason to start another unless your shoes are changing people's lives. And we hear from people all day, every day who are saying that, not because we have some magic bullshit technology, but because we get out of the way to let the incredible technology called your body do what's natural. Hey, it's Zach here and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. My guest today is Steven Sashin, who's the founder and CEO of Zero Shoes, and that is zero with an X. He is a serial entrepreneur who has never had a job that he didn't create, a former professional stand-up comic, an award-winning screenwriter, and to top it all off, he's a master's all-American sprinter, and in fact, he's one of the fastest men over 60 in the country. If Steven's bio hasn't done it already, listening to our conversation for all of five seconds today will quickly convince you, as it did me, that Steven is quite possibly the most interesting man in the world. Not to be confused with the Dos Equis man, of course. Now, you would be hard-pressed to find anybody with a more unique list of professional achievements than Steven. But what is even more interesting is the fact that if you were to ask him about the most important mindset required to be successful, his response would be, there isn't one. Because he attributes 90% of his success to luck, and the remaining 10% of his success is also attributed to luck. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about the L word today. If you are interested in stepping beyond your fears and your insecurities in an effort to better embrace the inevitable roadblocks and failures that you are going to encounter along your journey, you are going to find Stephen's approach to life, health, success, and business absolutely fascinating. Despite today's conversation having a good deal to do with Stephen's current mission of upending the footwear industry and exposing Big Shoe for the perpetuated lie that more is always better, and as a spoiler alert, yes, minimalist footwear is absolutely the way to go, one wonderful side effect of our chat is that Stephen is also showing us how we can redefine success, failure, love, and even life. 
I cannot wait for you to listen to this interview. It is one of my favorites ever, and I have no doubt it is going to provide you with the tools to move more assuredly towards your own more authentic version of success, no matter what that may look like to you. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Zero Shoes CEO, Stephen Sashin. To access the show notes for this episode with all of the bonus links and resources discussed today, as well as to subscribe, leave a review and more, simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash episode 197. I'm here today with Stephen Sashin, who is the co-founder and CEO of Zero Shoes. And for those doing your Google search, that is with an X, Zero Shoes. You are a serial entrepreneur who has never had a job that he didn't create. You're a former professional stand-up comic and an award-winning screenwriter, and you're a master's all-American sprinter. And in your words, one of the fastest men over 55 in the country and maybe the fastest 60-plus Jew in the world. Uh, You know, I just turned 60 a couple weeks ago, so I'm now one of the fastest 60-plus guys in the country. I know. That's uh, that's a pretty dubious distinction. Uh, (laughs) And the fact that I even even read this bio, my first reaction was not to any of that. It was, you're 60? Because I've met you and like, boy, do you have a lot of energy and you've taken care of yourself. To get to the point where you're 16, you can still do what you can do and have the vibrancy that you do. You know, I, I got to tell you, when I told people I was 59, they didn't respect, react the same way they did when I said I was 60. And it was only one day apart. Um, and I will concede I, I get a kick out of it. it. It's very entertaining. Not just, you know, people say, oh, my God, you're 60. But there are a handful of things that I still can do that uh, at 60, I'm very happy that I can do those. And those do freak people out. And I enjoy that. Like, you know, standing backflip, Nordic hamster and curls, you know, some crazy shit. Yeah, so there's a lot of that stuff we can definitely get into, and I want to set the the stage for why in the world I'm having a podcast conversation with the CEO of a shoe company because I don't I do want, that a whole. I, I don't do that too often. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious about that, Zach. Yeah, so the the reason the kind of the the moment that I had where I realized you have to be on the podcast uh, to go back a little bit uh, was in all places in the basement of a theater in North Hollywood where you and I had watched Christopher Titus do some stand up. Oh, so I'm so glad you added the why we were there, because otherwise it sounded very sketchy. Yeah, it, was, it sounded very nefarious. And uh, anything in North Hollywood, and you're like, wait, what's going on? But we were there for a stand-up special. Uh, and for anybody that listens to the show, they're already connecting the dots, because I just had Christopher Titus on the podcast a little while ago. Um, and kind of the, the linchpin that brings all this together is our relationship to Tony Horton. But yes, the point being— That way, that also makes it sound sketchy. So yes. you, um, you can define your relationship with Tony. I can add mine. And I've got a funny story about how that happened. But you sure. do— yeah, so the the idea is um, that this is how we ended up in the same random place. And I knew of you. I had already owned a, a couple of pairs of Zero Shoes uh, based on Tony's recommendation and the fact that I saw you on Shark Tank and had admired the work that you did. But when I met you in person, you started your conversation with a phrase. And as soon as you started it with this phrase, I'm like, okay, this guy is on the same wavelength as me. And you said, so what's been keeping you busy lately? No, I said busy and, and or happy. Oh, I like that. What's been keeping you busy and or happy? And the reason that stuck out is because just about everybody universally starts a conversation with a stranger with, what do you do? Right. Yeah. And I teach my students not to do that. And as soon as you answered or asked me the same question, I said, I have a feeling we're on the same wavelength. And we actually talked about that one question and why you asked it for like 10 minutes. Yeah. Well, you know, when people ask me what I do, I don't even answer. I mean, I, I go a roundabout way to get there, but the what I do part isn't what they give a shit about anyway. The, and frankly, I don't really care from that perspective. Um, what's interesting to me is what we're doing and how I can help somebody. So I'll sort of talk about that. But the what I do, I mean, no one understands what I do anyway. 
Yeah. So the, the simple answer is one, you know, the CEO of a shoe company. Okay, right. great. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so whatever. what do you do? Well, you know, I'm, you know, former Hollywood film and television editor. I've got a podcast. Okay, great. Well, that was cool. So yeah. uh, what'd you think of the show? What was your favorite joke? <laughs> Snorefest. Right. right. But as soon as you ask somebody what's keeping them busy and I love your addition and or happy, it doesn't mean they have to talk about work. And the reason that I add those in there is, you know, I'm, I don't have an agenda. Uh, wait, this is going to be sound kind of funny. So there's this whole concept that really took root in the late seventies, early eighties that has come to fruition in this, in this sort of, you know, zeitgeist that you're supposed to do what you love and the money will follow. There was literally a book called that exact title uh, written by Marshall Sinatar. And the thing that's so interesting to me about that is a, um, no one read the book or, I mean, the book did well, but no one really read it because she didn't suggest that, that if you do what you love, the money will follow from doing what you love. It's just, that it's important to find things that you do that you love. And it's totally cool. If what you do for income is just there to support the thing you do that you love. And many people don't think that way, but every now and then I meet someone when I say, you know, what keeps you busy and or happy where the busy part is work and the happy part is something outside of work. And I'm totally cool with that. I mean, I joke when people ask me, you know, what advice I have for a budding entrepreneur, I always say, get a government job with a pension. And because, I mean, if someone, I don't know if anyone could have convinced me when I was 20 that there was a government job that had a pension and gave me days off and benefits that would have been satisfying. They may have, they could have, I would have had to have seen it, but I never saw anything like that. So it never occurred to me to go down that path. But anyway, I just, you know, I like asking it that way because I like the delineation between work and what you do for fun also. Well, how dare you in this American culture separate our lives from our work? What we do is who we are, is it not? Uh, you know, uh, I find that one really kind of funny too. So when people ask me things like what I've done, I, 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 when I would go to dinner parties with my wife and they would ask me that question and she was standing there, I would say, all yours, baby. And I would leave because I've done so many things. It's just, it's just exhausting to even talk about it and not really worth it and not what they want to know anyway. So, um, but what was even more fun is when I was in retired mode. So my wife and I were able to live off the, some investments we had wasn't making a huge amount of money, but enough that we had a 30 second, uh, no, no, a five second conversation. Do we want to keep working for a living or can we live modestly on this? And that was the end of it. And um, sadly, the, the thing we were investing in it, the universe changed. But regardless, for nine years, we didn't have an answer. What do you do? And it was awesome. <laughs> in fact, I have a friend who's a, he's a multi-billionaire. And when we hang out uh, with new people and they ask him, you know, what he does, he just kind of laughs and looks at me. And then we both laugh. And then he goes, I'm a philanthropist. And then the conversation moves on to something else. <laughs> so it's really fun to not have uh, an answer for that that has anything to do with what you do for income. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And I think it's so important that we start to redefine ourselves with the, the direction that our culture is going now, where there has to be a separation between what we do during the day, what fulfills us, what keeps us happy. Like it, there has to be a more holistic package than just I am what I do. Do you have a theme when you think back to the things that you've done? Is there sort of a theme that encapsulates or encompasses most of the things? Not necessarily there all is a theme that encapsulates everything. Ooh, and yeah, I, I spent years digging into this. And what I found is that the theme, whether it's editing and producing television, whether it's writing, whether it's podcasting, whether it's coaching, I found that I get the most joy out of helping people discover 
what it is that they're capable of. of and I'm really good at pushing somebody into their discomfort zone, comfortably, <laughs> comfortably finding discomfort such that they can discover they are capable of a lot more than they thought they were. And in every realm of my life, that's what I'm working towards. And so when you're pushing and you get to that sort of discomfort thing, what do you think is creating the feeling of discomfort for people? I think it's fear of the unknown. It's I've lived my life comfortably. This is what I'm told I'm supposed to do. There's a part of me that knows I should be going this direction instead, but it's scary. I'm going to I'm gonna see if I can uh, push you into one of those places then. Mm. I don't think anyone's afraid of the unknown. And I say that because it's, it's, it's literally impossible. You can't be afraid of something that you have nothing for. I think people get, I think people have a specific idea of what this imagined future might be that where there's something else, like this is going to sound like a funny one for comics. A lot of comics have this idea that they shouldn't go to therapy because if they get therapized, they won't be funny. Okay. So they avoid looking inside and finding out why they're doing stupid, crazy crap, for example, because it's not a fear of the unknown. It's a specific fear. I won't be funny. And therefore I won't get paid. People won't like me. I won't be able to impress my friends, whatever the hell it is. So can you, I mean, just for the fun of it, if you can think of someone that you worked with or even in yourself, is it really a fear of the unknown or is it a fear of some, not some imagined future that um, seems unpleasant. Yeah, you know, that, that's a really good insight and a good way to look at it. And I guess the way that I would repackage it is perhaps it's a, partly a matter of fear of losing a specific identity that you're attached to. No. And let, let me give you an example of this in my own life that totally popped up. This is like almost, this is maybe eight or nine years old, but I just had this vivid picture of me having the exact same conversation that you had about comics and therapists. <laughs> um, I, was, I was, not about therapy specifically, but I was diagnosed about 15-ish years ago with adult onset ADD. I was having horrible issues just kind of managing the basics of my life and dealing with massive anxiety that was leading to depression. I was just a total mess. And I was like, what's going on? I was the valedictorian of my high school class, graduated top 3% University of Michigan. I can't pay my bills and I can't show up to work. What's going on? Diagnosed with adult onset ADD. And I started going down the rabbit hole. How is it that I fix this? I don't understand it. I wasn't a kid my entire life dealing with this. It's brand new to me. Mm. And one of the suggestions that I got was to do uh, something called neurofeedback that I've talked about in the oh, past yeah, yeah. where it's, a, you know, it's an actual process oh. where it's like playing a video game with your brain oh, wait, waves oh, to rewire them. Hold on, something you don't know about me. I was one of the early biofeedback pioneers back in 1975. Why does that not surprise me at all? <laughs> not even remotely surprised. Like, yeah, I'm one of the inventors of biofeedback and neurofeedback. Yeah, okay. <laughs> does not surprise me at all. The point being, I asked this exact question when I was sitting down with the neurofeedback specialist, and I have like an old podcast interview somewhere where I talk about this. And I said the exact same thing. I said, but hold on a second. If we fix the ADD, am I still going to be able to do all of this creative work? Like I will just get right. into the zone for hours and hours and like, that's who I am. It's what I do. It's my greatest strength. I can't lose that. So I don't want to do this treatment if I'm going to lose that. So I, for me, again, it wasn't fear of the unknown. It was fear of, I have an identity. Right. I'm going to lose that identity if I become something else. This is the thing that I find really, really interesting. First of all, thank you for sharing that one. Secondly, um, uh, the thing that I find really fascinating is that we, that like this idea that we imagine some future with some unpleasantness. And that's the thing we're really afraid of. I just had a flashback. My wife and I were engaged for three and a half years. And one morning I woke up and said, why didn't, haven't we set a date yet? And, um, and then we spent 
like two minutes, each expressing the imagined future that seemed potentially unpleasant. And in just saying it out loud, it became instantly obvious that it was just completely made up. And at the very least, we had no evidence that that would happen. More interestingly, we certainly had, uh, it was as, at least as possible that the exact opposite could be true. And by the end of this five, you know, three to five minute conversation, we set a date. And, and, but the, the, um, the part that I find really intriguing when we, is what you said about identity, because when we have any one of these beliefs, um, about anything that's sort of non-tangible, um, something about the future, something about whatever. It does seem to be really linked to our very sense of self. And I, I would argue that it's probably neurologically similarly held because what amazes me is when you confront someone who has some belief, any belief, um, that you then, all you have to do is question it. You don't have to propose some alternative. Just ask them to dive in and you know, ask questions like, when did you first start believing that? what was the thing that, you know, why did you come to believe that? How did you come to believe that? Just to get, kind of look at it frame by frame, speaking to an editor. And, um, and what invariably happens is at a certain point, they start acting like you're trying to kill them and their children and dig up their grandparents and kill them again, put them, I mean, like, it's amazing how we respond in this huge fight or flight manner over just questioning something that we believe some aspect of ourself. And um, I think that one of the fundamental problems that many people in business have, or any business, doesn't matter what you do, is that thing of like, if I retire, you know, who am I going to be? And without having an answer to what do you do for a living? Um, how, you know, what are you going to do? And, and again, it's just, there's this identity thing and they haven't entertained the, the identity of being the guy who says, I don't know, whatever happens when I wake up in the morning or whatever they do, you know, I travel, I hang out, I read books, I try not to make, you know, other people's lives miserable. So I stay at home all day. I mean, whatever you can think of. So anyway, I find the whole identity and belief thing simultaneously interesting and annoying because I'm, you know, as a business person confronting it on a daily basis, because we're dealing with people who believe things about footwear, which is behind me, that are patently false, that their own experience tells them is false. And yet they believe it and they've made an identity around believing it. And, uh, and you can't just say to them, they're wrong that you may have noticed telling people they're wrong doesn't go very well, especially the last couple of years. Yeah. So. Let's just look at Facebook for a minute or so to see how well that's working out for us. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't even tell them they're wrong. You can just say that you believe something different than them. That doesn't work well either. I mean, that's as it, that saying that you believe something different is akin to telling them that they're wrong in their mind instead of it used to be, I mean, my, you know, my mom was a, a, a Democrat. My dad was a Republican. They never voted because they knew they just canceled each other out. I mean, they literally on every issue, but they had a 50 plus year marriage. They got along swimmingly. It wasn't a problem in the way that now it's like, oh, you like blue? I like teal. Yeah, I know that's a kind of a shade of bluish, but that's eh, not going to work. Yeah, uh, doesn't surprise me that within 10 minutes of our conversation, we're existential and talking about the meaning of life and person and identity and everything else. <laughs> kind of kind of assumed that was the direction we were going to go, and I'm certainly not going to curb that whatsoever. However, what, 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 what I, else would anybody talk about? What else, right? That Who doesn't, right? Which is one of the reasons why within about three minutes, I'm like, oh, I totally got to get this guy in the podcast. <laughs> uh, what I want to do is give people at least a little bit of context. I'm not going to ask okay. you what you do or what you did. You However, can. I think there, there's a lot of value to people better understanding a little bit more about your story because okay. what I love about it is that you didn't just assign yourself one identity. I'm a stand-up. 
I'm a writer. I'm an entrepreneur. Like you've done so many different things, but similar to the question that you ask me, my guess is there's an underlying theme to all of it. And I think there's a lot of value in being a stand-up and a writer that lends to you being an entrepreneur. So let's just kind of do that, this short version of kind of the, the story of Steve, the hero's oh, no, journey I, of Steve. I, I, look, I can do the shortest version. I can answer the same question I asked you. The theme for me is um, getting underneath getting underneath as many layers of things as I can until I find something true. And so comedy is, is, I mean, even just telling a joke, just like a joke joke, like here's a, let me think of a recent joke. Oh, so here's a, a, a joke that I wrote not long ago. My doctor says that the fact that I have long hair as a man could indicate that I have some issues with my masculinity. And I said, if I wanted psychological advice, I wouldn't ask my gynecologist. And so, <laughs> so there, the, the interesting thing, while there's not a truth underneath that, I'm not saying some specific in that type, that format of a joke is still about the truth. All you're doing is moving the, where people thought they were to somewhere else. When they discover where you're really going and that truth of where we're really going, my doctor's a gynecologist, doesn't match with where they were, that creates a funny response. Um, and, um, but there's also jokes that are, and ways of being funny that are really about telling the truth. In fact, I remember uh, Bill Maher, his first Tonight Show, he did a bunch of political stuff. And then he said, one of my all-time favorite jokes of anybody, any comic, especially him, was, ah, who am I to try and change the world? I'm no folk singer. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and there was a lot in there that I, I really, really enjoyed. Um, so yeah, for me, all the things I've done, stand-up comedy, uh, I was a street performer before that, um, uh, starting a software company, uh, investing in different ways, doing stock system analysis, teaching meditation, teaching applied behavioral economics, how you think about money, uh, starting, starting zero shoes. It's all the underlying thing is always what's true in there, especially if there's something, if the layers above that are uh, mythology and lies, which I find just uh, really unacceptable. So then that having been said, what is the truth you're seeking in creating a shoe company? Um, it wasn't that I was seeking it. Um, what, what I was actually seeking was a solution to a problem. I got back into sprinting 15 years ago, I was getting injured constantly for the next two years. And a friend of mine suggested that I, and I, which was really annoying to me because I really enjoyed that week long stretch where I wasn't injured before I got injured yet again. Um, one day I'm hobbling through the kitchen and my wife, Lena says to me, genuinely curious, she goes, are you having fun? And I said, oh my God, more than you can imagine. I just hate the fact that I can barely walk. So, but just the I mean, as identities go, the identity of a master sprinter, that's a fun one. I'm all for it. So uh, I just wanted to be better. I wanted to be healthier. I wanted to figure it out. And a friend of mine, he's a world champion cross country runner, um, who at that time was, he was, I was 45, he was 55. Um, he suggested I try taking off my big, thick padded motion controlled arch supporting shoes, run barefoot and see if I learned anything. He wasn't suggesting that I spend all my time barefoot, just use it to see if you learn anything. And the short version is what I learned is that I had a, instantly is that I had a form problem that I couldn't feel when I was in a thick padded shoe that wouldn't let my foot move naturally. And more importantly, I learned how to correct that form problem because basically when you're barefoot running wrong hurts and running right feels great. You can spot a barefoot runner from 50 yards. They have a weird look on their face called, um, God, I can't find words. Uh, oh, smiling. They uh, have smiling. I thought it might've been pleasure. Yes. Yeah, same one. So, um, so that was, you know, that there was that, that discovery of like, huh, maybe the shoes that these shoe guys are recommending to me are not uh, what they thought they were because getting out of them cured my problems. And then I started doing more research and I discovered that there, that first of all, 
human since the beginning of humans, footwear has been something to protect your foot, something to hold that onto your foot, maybe some insulation, depending on where you are. That's it. And that's what footwear was from the beginning of human history till about 1973. And so the modern athletic shoe is the intervention. And there's no evidence. There's literally no evidence that it improves performance or reduces injury. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that it does the opposite, especially creating injury. Uh, quick aside, Nike did a study that they came out with a couple of years ago, testing one of their, their best-selling running shoes, motion control, padded, art supporting, everything shoe against a new shoe they developed. And the way this study was publicized was new shoe reduces injury by 52%. True. But when you actually read the numbers, the best-selling shoe in a 12-week study that they designed injured over 30% of the people wearing it. The new shoe is only 15%. Now, imagine going to a shoe store and you say, I need a good running shoe, hopefully one that's going to prevent injuries, you know, make me run faster. They go, well, here's one. Uh, but by the way, there's a one in three chance you're going to get injured in the next 12 weeks. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. Do you have a better one? Okay, this one's only going to have a one in seven chance that you get injured in the next 12 weeks. Don't you have anything that's going to make me stronger or better? Or oh, yeah, we don't we don't sell those here. So I, I, had, a, I had a conversation with a... Um, C-level person, CEO, CFO, COO, C-level, uh, at a, a multi-billion dollar footwear brand who said, yeah, this natural movement thing that you're doing at Zero Shoes, totally legit. We can't do it because it would be admitting that everything we've said for the last 50 years is a lie. So discovering the, the two things that animate me with what we're doing now, I mean, I didn't plan on starting a shoe company. It was totally a fluke. I, after I was barefoot, I wanted to have that barefoot-like experience but I wanted to be able to get into restaurants without arguing about whether it was legal. It is, by the way. Um, I, my wife wanted me to be able to walk into the house without, you know, tramping my dirty feet over our off-white carpeting. So I made a pair of sandals based on a 10,000-year-old design idea. And then people kept asking me to make them for them. So I made, I don't know, 50, 60 pairs of sandals. Um, and then someone said, if you had a website for this hobby of yours making sandals, I could put you in a book that I'm writing. And so I rush home and I pitch this incredible opportunity to my wife, who assures me that I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> and um, it's a waste of time, distraction from other things we were trying to do. Don't do it. And I'm a good husband. So I told her I wouldn't. And I'm a typical husband. So after she went to bed, I built a website. And, <laughs> and I thought, you know, I said to her, look, maybe it'll be a car payment in a couple of months. Um, it was more than a car payment, like on day one. So she being a brilliant finance and operations person who knows that I am not that uh, organization is not my skill set. She came in and goes with the appropriate hand gesture, says, I'm all in and I'll take over the business side. You run the product marketing side. And that's how it all um, began. So there was some other point to that um, about not wanting to do it. I don't remember. Anyway, that's sort of the gist of how. Oh, but again, so the, the thing that animates me is two things. One, um, a line of my wife's, which is there's enough shoe companies in the world. There's no reason to start another unless your shoes are changing people's lives. And we hear from people all day, every day who are saying that, not because we have some magic bullshit technology, but because we get out of the way to let the incredible technology called your body do what's natural. And the second thing that motivates me is um, that I find it morally repugnant that there are these multi, multi-billion dollar companies who are knowingly hurting people knowingly provide a product that does not do what they say and making billions and billions and billions of dollars doing it and hurting people and sucking money out of their pocket along the way. I find that um, completely reprehensible, and not acceptable. And so I'm trying to um, pull the rug out from underneath that too. 
I love it. Uh, all of these things are things that I can so much relate to and take a, take the word shoe out of the equation. Right. Basically, it's basically what I'm doing with the, the podcast and the coaching program and all the resources is that I identified that we as creative professionals are being exploited beyond our beliefs and the lack of work-life balance, the way that we're treated, the way that we're perceived, the way that and you having worked in Hollywood, we'll talk more about that too, oh, yeah. knowing that I'm considered below the line, you're considered above the line. Again, these are, these are not bugs in the system, they're features. It's designed right. to work this way. Right. And I decided, I don't know if I can fix it myself, but I can at least educate people so they know and have awareness that there's a problem and take it upon themselves to start optimizing themselves, setting these boundaries, setting these guardrails, which then eventually, as more people do it, can change the culture that we work in. Here's a story to reflect that. Um, when I was doing comedy for a living, there was a new club that was opening. I was asked to open the club. There was two other acts um, opening for me and we get there and there's no one in the audience. And it's a Saturday night and there's no one in the audience. And the club owner says, well, what do we do? I said, well, um, you can just pay us and we'll leave or we can get up on stage and talk to no one for you know however long it is. And then you can pay us and we'll leave. It's really up to you. But you paid for our, us to be here. Uh, and you know we argued back and forth. And then one of the other comics says, why don't you just give me half and I'll go. And as the club owner is reaching into his pocket to pull out the money, I pulled the guy aside and I went, this club is going to close in four weeks because of you. He's like, what? I said, you just told this guy that we're all dispensable, disposable, replaceable, and stupid. And um, clubs that treat people like that don't last. And four weeks later, it was done. Hmm. And, and, but to your point, I mean, I was stunned. At, stunned. I was simultaneously stunned, and I totally understood why this guy did what he did, in part because he just didn't have everything you said, the inner wherewithal to go, you paid me to be here. I'm here. Pay me. Simple, simple thing. I, I remember doing commercials where um, I, was, I, I was hired to do a commercial. It was for an indoor softball field. They were putting these in Chicago. They were from Australia, which is kind of important to the story, I just realized. Um, and the whole idea was for the commercial, they wanted me to do a diving catch of the ball. But they were throwing the ball from like 10 feet away, where your brain doesn't have enough time to calculate the trajectory and get there. And, uh, and A, they were saying, well, I've seen you no know, so-and-so do this. I went, you just named a $10 million a year professional baseball player who sees the ball coming for five seconds because of their trajectory. And you're asking me to replicate that in a split second. And you're also asking me to do this on concrete instead of grass. Mm. So no. And um, they got all pissy and called my agent and basically threatened to fire me. And I said, fine. And they went, all right, never mind. So, you know, and I did that a number of times where I, wait, sorry, you'll love this one. I don't think I told you the story. Uh, when I, so I got a degree in screenwriting from Columbia. I won an award for some script that I wrote and I got a call from William Morris. And no, wait, I don't remember if it was Morris or CAA because it's been a long time. Anyway. They're all the uh, same company nowadays anyway. <laughs> so you, you're right no matter what agency you say. Yeah, that's true. And even if it's not the same agency, it's all the same people. Uh, so I go in for my noon meeting. And at 1245, I stood up and left. It's like, and they, I got a call from my manager freaking out. What happened? I said, well, I was there for 45 minutes waiting and I have other shit to do. So I left. Do you want to have the meeting? I said, yeah, I mean, fine with me. So they called me back. And, All right, let's do it next week. 12 o'clock. I said, great. I show up at 12 o'clock, 1215. I stood up and left. <laughs> <laughs> they called me back by the third time they had the red carpet out. And what was even more fun was at the end of this whole thing, I turned them down. They didn't have the right guy for me, but it was, there was nothing more fun than standing up for yourself when you know you're right. 
it's a blast. You have a superpower when you're right. You don't have to be a dick about it. You can just, because you know, you're in the right. In fact, you can be really, really calm. It's like, yeah, you booked this for 12. I have a life. I got to go. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from Ergo Driven co-founder and CEO, Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're going to invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life. They're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the topo mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the topo mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. One of the really, there's actually, there's a ton of things that I want to dig into, but there's two very specifically that I want to point out. One of which is something I talk about ad nauseum all day, every day on the podcast with the students in my coaching program is the importance of setting boundaries. But number two, the more important one that you're doing that less people think about is you train people how they're allowed to treat treat you. And, you know, I, I do want to add this one thing because there's two ways of setting boundaries. This is not something I think about very often. Um, but one is reactively and the other is organically. I'm making up that distinction in real time, but I think you'll know what I mean. One is, you know, like, don't treat me like that. I'm going to say from now on, if you talk to me, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, first of all, trying to control someone else's behavior is never a good idea. But the bigger one is, you know, if you're angry, if you're, if you haven't gotten to the point where it's like literally you can say whatever that boundary is, whatever that thing you're requesting. First of all, it's realistic. Like don't ask someone to promise to behave in some way because none of us can control that 100% of the time. But if you can't make that request with the same feeling that you would respond to someone if they ask you the time, if you can't say, oh, it's 12.15 and I'd like it if you make an appointment at 12 that you actually keep the appointment at 12 because I've got to schedule things and uh, my schedule is really tight. Is that going to work for you? I mean, give a chance, you know, so that's, so that's the organic way. It's like, it's really because you are taking care of yourself 
you're t- it, it's true what you're asking for or saying. And it's not just, you know, that you're being whiny or demanding or being reactive in that way where, where you haven't you know, kind of worked it out. One of the, one of the reasons that I, uh, uh, adorn my wife is that we have the same uh, fighting style, if you will. We don't have fights very often, like once every three or four years. But when we do, the good news is that for both of us, the style is that we separate ourselves and wait till we're calm enough that we can just sort of talk about what what's going on. We've never said, uh, I need you to know how I'm feeling. We've never used the word process. <laughs> it's it's really just like, okay, here's what was, I was thinking. Here's what I was feeling as a result. Here's how I then behaved as a result of that. Um, and then one of us typically just goes, ay, 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 and then it's all over. Because you're both human. You're both going to make mistakes, right? No. Oh, there's no question. You know, I mean, it's really simple. When we both get stressed, overstressed, overtired, um, she gets micromanaging and I become a total bitch. I mean, it's very clear. <laughs> and, um, and so, I mean, this is the joke. We've been together over 20 years. It's always the exact same thing. It just takes us maybe three minutes of yelling till we go, all right, we're doing that thing again. And then we just walk away until we can come back. Right. Uh, so I'm going to change the conversation a little bit and go into a different subject that I know that okay. um, potentially you and I have, I have very different viewpoints on this. Oh, good. And it's I'm something that... Uh, it's something that uh, I've talked about a lot on this podcast and anybody that listens regularly knows that I am not a big believer in the L word. I don't believe in luck. And I know that you have a different viewpoint about what <laughs> luck is. And I would love to talk about how much we both believe luck factors into success. Okay. Well, um, I can't talk about that until you tell me what success means. All right. So that's another great question. That's something we talk about a lot. And there, in my mind, there are two kind of different categories of success. There's the external version of success that most everybody is working towards. So in the example of being in the, let's just use the entertainment industry. Yeah. Success for you is I sell a screenplay, I get an agent at William Morris, I get a feature or a TV series produced, I end up winning an Oscar, an Emmy. Now I'm quote unquote successful. Right. Uh, You're not, it doesn't lead to people loving me and I get laid. Uh, well, it could. It certainly could. Those can be side effects for sure. But I would say that no, that's- I'm, I'm being serious when I say that because, you know, the, I sell it and I get a lot of money. I mean, you know, if we keep asking why, if I, if someone told me that was their definition of success, I would say, why do you want that? Hey, what right. do you mean? Well, why do you want, you know, to sell it? Well, uh, I mean, let's just start with that before you make the money. Um, why do you want to sell it? And whatever they're going to say they'd come up with, you know, why do you think you need the money? And invariably, this comes back to the identity thing, most likely, invariably, all of those imagined futures are some version of I'll be happy when, I'll be happy if, which is hysterical because, um, do you know the book um, Stumbling on Happiness? Uh, I know of it. I haven't read it, but I certainly know of it. Well, there's also a TED Talk. Uh, It's from Daniel Gilbert, who's at Harvard. Here's the Reader's Digest version. We are, there's actually two aspects. One about what we think will make us happy. And the other is how upset we think we'll continue to be in the future if we're upset now. But let's just focus on the happy one first. Most of our thinking if you really look, is some variation of what do I need to do now to be happy in some imagined future? A split second from now, a minute from now, a year from now, the end of my life, whatever it is. The interesting thing is that we're really bad at it. The more interesting thing is that we're even worse at remembering how bad at it we are. And even more, we think we're special because if we imagine, you know, we say, oh, um, it's having some amount of money. If we met a million people who got that amount of money that we think we need to be happy and you checked carefully, uh, you'd find out they were either no happier than they were before, maybe less happy and probably no happier than they were 
than they are compared to you, or if they were, that's just how they are compared to you. In other words, the money didn't make a difference. And yet we still think we're special. We go, yeah, but if I got the money, you know, I know that lottery winners are no happier a year later after they won the lottery, but if I won the lottery, so, um, so that's the, the basic premise. And so this thing you're saying, it's like this success thing is some version, the way you described it, I would keep digging because it's going to, I would imagine it always leads to some version of I'll be happy, whatever that definition is, when fill in the blank, when people know who I am, when I walk into a restaurant, when I can, you know, show up at a bar and the hot chicks want to go with home with me, when I, whatever it is. And even then I'd still ask, you know, why do you want that? Um, and to, to really, really dig down to the bottom of it. So that's the, so for, for the success part, um, from my perspective, we still haven't landed anywhere because all we've landed on is a new set of questions for why you think you want this thing that you think might make you happy. <laughs> Agreed. And you're, it's, it's so funny how much in alignment you are with so much of the things that I talk about with my students when we do talk about this, yeah. which is starting with this idea of what do you think the perceived definition of success is externally? What are all the things you're getting? Et cetera, and then there's et cetera. the internal one. The, it's not just the internal version, but it's that everybody's definition of success is different once you dig into it, right? So like, you know, I'll give you an example for me where I went from going down the same path of, well, I just need to work on a show at this level and I'm going to be happy. Well, now right. that I'm there, but now the show needs to get more viewers or I need to get paid more. I, I was on the same trajectory and the image of success, quote unquote, was I finally won my Oscar and I'm standing on the stage. That was my right. identity. Going back to what we talked about earlier, it's not yeah. just a path. That was the identity and all that was shaken when I all of a sudden reached a pinnacle. It wasn't the pinnacle, but a pinnacle. I'm like, all right, so clearly this strategy doesn't work because I'm more miserable than I've ever been and something needs to change, which is why over the last seven years, I've made this major career transition. Yeah. And the, the hardest part of it, going back to the beginning of our conversation, was eliminating or accepting that that was no longer my identity. Who am I right. if I'm not working towards an Oscar? That was the hardest barrier. It wasn't, how do I pay the bills? or how, It was, how do I accept the fact that I don't need to win an Oscar anymore? That was really, really hard. Dude, especially but, in the neighborhood you live in, but anyway. It, Exactly. But the, if I were to define, if you had asked me to define success three, four years ago, the mm -hmm. definition of success for me, and one thing that I don't ask anymore is what would make you happy. There's mm -hmm. a word that I like a lot better because happy is more a fleeting emotion. What would make you fulfilled? And for me, what fulfilled me at the time and the reason I felt the way that I did was I never had any time to spend with my kids. I was consumed by work. And I said, success for me is designing a lifestyle that pays the bills, that allows me to be home at 3 p.m. when my kids get home from school so I can help them with their homework. That was success. So I'm gonna dig into that one a little bit. Um, the pays the bills part is a really interesting one because you can live somewhere else and what it takes to pay the bills is a whole different game. I have friends, including some friends from Hollywood who have Oscars, who live in uh, Cuenca, uh, Ecuador, and they're living like kings for $1,500 a month. So, you know, whole, you can, that pays the bills thing is really interesting. I, one of the things that I've asked a lot of people and I've talked to a lot of people about is the word enough. I say most people don't know what the word enough means when it comes to their financial life. And until you know that, you are screwed. So when my wife and I, when we were retired from 2000 to 2009, um, from some investments that we had done, it was again, just on, you know, just enough money that we knew we didn't have to work for a living. And that was really it. And that seemed like a great gig, like not having to work for a living, even if it's living modestly seemed awesome. And in fact, it was. And in that process, um, in 2006, the world started to change. The investments we had were based on some clever real estate strategies. And we saw that um, anyone who had a pulse could get a 
uh, mortgage, a conventional mortgage. And we went, oh, this is going to crash. We got to get out of here. So we started getting out of real estate two years before, even a year before, um, what's his name? The guy from the big short realized there was a problem. We were ahead of that curve. And, um, but in that process, we went, okay, um, now that our, uh, the cash flow that we have that's allowing us to not work is going to dry up. How much money do we need to never have to work again? And let's figure out what that enough word means. Like if we literally had a suitcase full of money under the bed and we came up with a number and we went, all right, that's the number where if we had that, we'd never have to work again. If we wanted to, we could, but we didn't have to, we didn't have to make decisions based on money. And we thought that was going to be a you know fun goal to achieve. Um, we are, you know, now literally accidentally, we are going to be past that point, assuming the universe doesn't explode. And, you know, where someone gives us more cash for the company at some point, blah, blah, blah. But if people don't know what the word enough means, it's really easy to stay on that treadmill you were talking about. I, I had dinner with a friend. Um, my wife and I had dinner with a neighbor, actually, who's a best-selling romance novelist. And my uh, interesting part of the conversation, someone said to her at dinner, uh, it must be wonderful to be able to do what you love and make money. She goes, oh, no, no, I hate writing. I'm just really good at it. And it pays me a lot of money. So we talked about this enough thing. And she made a calligraphy version of the word enough, put it on her refrigerator. Two months later, we're having dinner at her house again. She goes, guess what? I'm retired. I said, what happened? She goes, I kept thinking about what you said about enough. I figured out the number. And then I realized if I sold this one rental property I have, it's appreciated so much, I'm done. And so she did. And she now when she went back to writing, because her fans love her, it's just like a thing to do. It's not a big deal. It's just so anyway, back to the success thing. I think that that um, pay the bills is really, really important for people to get clarity about. And very few people can either do that or tolerate that it means that you could be at a dinner party and and um, they again back to what we were talking about they imagine that if they uh, talked about how little money they actually probably needed to be enough that people would look down on them. What I can tell you is if you can say I'm doing whatever I want because I don't have to work for a living, no one's going to care how much money you have. They're all going to go. Uh, how, how do I do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, not all, because some people get really wrapped up in it. You know, I, when I meet entrepreneurs who just who say, well, I just love working. I go, you got to find a better hobby then. Because my God, man, you're killing yourself. So, all right. Yeah. So the, the, you want to, so you realize, all right, I want to have enough to pay the bills. I want to stay home with my kids. That's success for you. So that is this more intrinsic version, this more organic version. So, all right, backing up to the luck thing. So, um, and, and FYI, I've got to tell you, I don't use that S word at all. It has, I have no frame of reference for it. I don't care how much money I do or don't have. I don't care, you know, how people are seeing me or not seeing me. In fact, the seeing me thing is kind of funny. I was walking into our office one day, a couple of years ago, hot summer day. I'm in bare feet, cargo shorts, a zero shoes t-shirt that is not as good looking as the one I'm wearing now. My hair was even bigger than it is right now. And I catch my, myself, a uh, reflection of myself in the window. And I went, oh, I'm that guy. <laughs> oh, I didn't know I was that guy. Yeah. All right. So, um, but, um, uh, but I, I literally just don't have a concept for what that word means. There's, you know, when I was an all-American gymnast, people were congratulating me when I had that last routine that made me an all-American. And I just remember thinking, I don't understand why you're congratulating me. My coach and I realized it was possible to achieve this. We figured out a plan to get there. We executed on the plan. It worked. There was nothing to it. It was not emotional. It was not personal. It was just the side effect of a bunch of things, but backing up to your luck, 
The luckiest part about it is that my coach was my gym teacher who happened to be a like five-time world or three-time world and five-time national tumbling champion. And one of the greatest coaches of anything, especially gymnastics ever in the world. That guy was my gym teacher. So had I, had I lived one block over, that wouldn't have happened. So um, there's that weird combination. And he sees it in many in similar ways. At one point, years later, we're still friends, actually. Uh, and I said, um, Jesus, 50 years after the fact, I said, uh, how many people did you ever teach this one particular move to? He goes, nobody. I said, why not? He goes, you were the one who could do it. So for him, the luck was I was the guy who could do that thing that he allowed me to then do. And um, so anyway, so... All right, so we've deconstructed success and blah, blah, blah. Back to the luck. So the, 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 yeah, the, the reason I brought up luck is that I do think that luck exists. When people say, well, well success, okay. there is no, like, I do think that luck exists. And I'll give you an example. Oh, 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 I am, I agree. I am extremely lucky that I was born a white male to a family that had money in the United States of America. No I am very lucky that that happened. I had nothing to do with that. I didn't right. create that. I didn't manifest it. Man, right. did I get lucky that I was born that way. Right. But I feel that a lot of, and another example would be that if you're doing everything you possibly can to stay safe and you start walking across the streets in a busy city and you get hit by a bus, oh boy, do you have be luck, right? If you're looking at your phone, you didn't have bad luck. You had something to do with that happening. Yeah. But if it just happens, it happens. So yeah. there's that kind of luck that, of course, I believe in. But I feel that so many people use luck as an excuse for why other people have the success, quote unquote, success that they don't. Oh, well, you just oh, got lucky. Funny. I could I could never make that happen because you got lucky and I'm an unlucky person going back to this idea of identity. Oh, and I believe luck for a very large part is when hard work intersects with opportunity. Okay. And if the so, opportunity came and you hadn't done the hard work, then luck doesn't happen. So, okay. So I like the way you did that second part, because I think the second part is the true part. The, what you said was, you know, luck intersecting. How'd you say it the first way? Uh, luck is the intersection of when your hard work meets opportunity. Okay. So, so let me start with this. I, it's fascinating hearing you say that the way you hear about luck is people saying, oh, that guy was lucky. Um, I would argue, not argue, I would contend that often that's a fine and valid and truthful way of perceiving what happened for somebody. To use it as a complaint about how they got it and you didn't, you're just a whiny bitch. So um, I like the term I, excuse over complaint, using it as an excuse. Yeah, well, it's both. I mean, it's a complaint, sure. it's an excuse, but, you know, but really it's just being whiny because um, who cares? I mean, so what? That person got lucky. Look, again, I did, I did stand up for a living. I can tell you, I have a bunch of friends who got really lucky. They were in the right room at the right time with the right person and, um, and got breaks well before they were talented enough to deserve them. Who cares? And I have friends who were really, really good who just never made it. Cause you know, whatever. And, um, and I could, I could make a good case for the luck component there, but I don't care. I mean, it's like, you know, at best when, when I talk to my comedy friends and we, we bemoan someone who is doing very, very well, getting lots of gigs, it's making a lot of money who we really find, uh, we find it mysterious because we've never found them funny. You know, we're just being old whiny bitches. So, and it's an entertaining thing to do every now and then. But personally, um, the, how do I want to describe this? 
Yeah, luck is a totally, totally, totally real thing. My line, and I think I might have told you this, when people ask me how Tulane and I, we got where we are, I actually quote, um, this is perfect that I'm telling you, the late director Milos Forman. So when I was at Columbia, he was one of my teachers. And someone asked Milos in a like big public thing, they go, well, how do you make a good movie? And he says, well, you know, making a good movie is uh, simple. It's uh, 90% casting. And the other 10% is... Um, He's also casting and, and being at Columbia where there was a lot of people who he had cast in things who were coming in and out. That was true for him. Like when I met Brad Dourif, um, Brad was Billy Bibbit from Cuckoo's Nest. Brad, I mean, Brad was these things that he gets cast at. That is Brad in, in, in many, many ways. I mean, I met so many people that Milos cast, like they are that person. It's just a mild tweak of their personality to get there at best. So for business, um, I often say uh, it, our business, how we, what we've achieved is 90% luck and the other 10% is also luck. And there's a separate 100% where 90% is working your ass off and the other 10% is hopefully being smart enough to know how to put out the fires that started overnight, despite the fact that nothing changed since yesterday. So for me, the luckiest thing was one day... <laughs> tell the story this way. One day when my then fiance and I were going to go and find a place to have a wedding, we were invited or I don't know how it happened. A bunch of people got together for brunch, a bunch of people that I know. And somebody brought someone who I didn't know. It's this woman named Lena Phoenix. And afterwards uh, at this brunch, my then fiance was very upset and said, you should be getting married to someone like that. And I said, ah, don't be ridiculous. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you're totally right. And, uh, <laughs> and then Lena avoided me like the plague or the plague if it had herpes and COVID and, uh, and, and monkeypox. That's the thing du jour. Um, and, uh, and then for whatever reason, um, again, total luck. She was flipping through the channels on her TV, which she never really watched TV. But then in the place that she was living with a friend of mine, uh, they had a TV and she's flipping through. And I had a television show that was on. It was like car talk, but for computers. So accidentally, she sees my show. A week later, she has a computer problem and she didn't know who to call. She felt horrible calling this guy she's been ghosting and avoiding, but she didn't know what to do. So she called me and I'm thinking, yes, it's my chance. Uh, it was not my chance, but that's what I was thinking. And so she comes over, I fixed her computer. She buys me dinner to say thanks and afterwards decides to be my friend. Then we're friends for three years, despite everything I was doing to try to convince her to you know, be more than that, which by the way, I was doing horribly obnoxious ridiculous things. And she never got with the program. Uh, and so then one day um, she kind of got with the program when I confessed to all the embarrassing, horrible things that I was doing to try to make her like me enough to be more than a friend. When I had, the, because I had the idea that we'd be a good couple, which is a silly version of what we talked about before, imagining a happy future, because she and I had never been a couple. So I have no idea how we'd be in a relationship. And if you ask my exes, I didn't do couple very well from their perspective, because I wouldn't like agree with things like how they thought they were broken. I wouldn't agree with that. And their identity was about being broken. And the fact that I wasn't agreeing, real problem. <laughs> so, um, And then Lena at the same time was going over every reason she could think of that she shouldn't be with me. And then she said, I got to the end of the list and suddenly it hit me. Everything I've ever looked for in a relationship, I could have with you. And then she leans over and kisses me. So actually, here's the end of the story or the middle of the end of the story. Uh, I then said, it's a good thing you did that. And she says, why? I said, ah, it would have been weird if I asked you to marry me before you'd ever kissed me. And she, <laughs> says, she says, why didn't you? I said, ooh, that's a good question. Uh, it never occurred to me that that would be a thing to do. 
She's oh, okay. And then two hours later, I'm dropping her off at the airport for her to go home. And, she, and it's like this sentence is pounding through the top of my brain. And so I say, so will you marry me? And she goes, I don't know. I went, what? She goes, well, you're talking about the future. I'm about to get on an airplane for all I know, it's going to crash. Thinking, oh my God, I totally asked the right one. So, um, <laughs> so the luckiest thing is that somehow Lena showed up in my life and somehow through all these completely unlikely scenarios, we've been a couple for the last uh, 24 years or so. And that's luck number one. Luck number two, among the many, many things I could list in there is one day, a friend of ours is walking his dog. Not a big deal, except normally his wife does. Just so happens there's another guy in that same situation. His wife normally walks the dog. He's walking the dog. The dogs knew each other. So the dogs started hanging out. The guys start talking. Our friend says to this guy, what do you do? He says, oh, I'm the head of uh, global product design at Crocs. My friend says, oh, my friend Stephen and Lena have a shoe company. We didn't have a shoe company. We were selling a do-it-yourself sandal making kit. We were selling sheets of rubber, some cord, and instructions on how to make a 10,000-year-old sandal design. He gives, Dennis gives our friend his phone number. I sat on it for months thinking, why would this guy want to talk to me? Eventually, I called him. Uh, we got together for lunch. I thought it was going to be a half an hour. Four hours later, we're having a great time. And I said, I'd love to you know, find someone like you, but 30 years younger, who's still getting his feet wet, uh, to work for the company. He goes, well, what about me? I said, uh, you were getting paid 300 grand at your last job. And he goes, yeah, but I'm retired now. Okay, you're hired. So uh, the fact that, you know, that, and, and it was also because he had tried our sandals and said, these things changed my life and my wife as well. So the, the luck component is, you know, the meeting, the, you know, safe falling in your head, baby that you're catching when someone yells baby and it fell out of the window. The, the meeting preparation and all the rest to meet that thing, um, even there, you know, so much of why he was saying, let's do it. We, we're selling a do-it-yourself sandal making kit for 20 bucks. We were not really in the footwear biz. Why he thought this was a really good idea is beyond any amount of preparation. The only thing I had that I really could contribute at that time was being willing to go, well, let's go for it and figure it out from here. And, and I guess, I mean, I'll end this long rant on that one, when people ask me, you know, like what kind of mindset you need to achieve whatever I go, there, there is none. Everyone I know who is quote successful, especially in the entertainment business. I, I don't know anyone who isn't anxious, nervous, worried, thinking they have imposter syndrome. I mean, whatever it is, no one is like, you know, happy the way you imagine. Um, I go, the only, the, you don't even need an attitude. All you need is to go, eh, yeah, good work. <laughs> it's like, maybe. I mean, what the hell? Well, well, let me challenge you on this then. When you're, uh, you have this, this imposter syndrome about like, who oh, am I, I to that. think I, right. But at the time, the thoughts were, who am I to think I can even reach out to this person? And I just well, am making was, homemade it, sandals. And But it, it wasn't imposter syndrome because it wasn't like I'd achieved something and I didn't feel like I deserved it. It's like, it just didn't make sense to me that somebody, because I wasn't really thinking of myself as being in the footwear business. Mm -hmm. I was, I was selling a wacky barefoot running sandal kit. So it just didn't make sense to me. All right. So then let me, let me challenge that part of it, okay. perhaps. And you can speak to this more because I know this is a big part of owning a business, entrepreneurship, venture capital, raising money. Perhaps it wasn't so much him looking at the idea and saying, oh, my God, like putting something on the bottom of a barefoot that's genius. It was more seeing the potential in the person that had the idea and being able to execute that idea. 
Yeah. And that's the part where I'm going to still come back to luck, because as you said, as your intro to luck, I just happen to be born with whatever the hell this is. Um, and so I have no control over that part. Um, in fact, from having done stand up for, for over a decade, uh, I have very little control over what comes out of my face when it's in my brain. So, um, so, you know, some people are okay with that. Some people are don't like it. Um, cause I'll kind of say whatever to anybody, but, um, in fact, to your point, we seven months in well before we met Dennis, we had met some other guys totally randomly, complete luck who'd been in footwear for 35 years. And they met with us and said, we believe in what you're doing. Natural movement is the most important thing. And we believe in you guys and whatever that means. And, you know, they said, if we'd start this business with you, but we've been in footwear so long, we're not stupid enough to try and start a shoe company. And Lane and I went, yeah, well, we know we're hyper optimistic and naive, but that's the only way anything ever happens. So away we go. So yes, um, a part of it is that for whatever reason, we connected and that worked. And I would argue that's lucky as well. So I, I'm not going to really argue your point. I, I totally get what you're saying. I'm just saying from my perspective, I literally, from my perspective, I literally can't think of anything at all ever for which I'm responsible. I know that sounds crazy, but I mean, if I drill down and get as granular as I can, if I'm shooting at 500 frames a second and I'm looking at this frame by frame, at best, I could say the instigation of something was a thought that popped into my mind. It popped into my mind. I did not make it happen. It came out of my mouth. I, uh, in theory, I could have edited, except that seems arbitrary to me as well. I didn't. There's times where it seems that I do, but that was the thought to edit it that popped into my mind as well. I notice at night, um, I'll get an image that pops into my mind of some kind of food. And I watch myself in amazement as I'm almost, it's, I find it almost impossible to not go get that food. I, and I literally find that process stunning and confusing. Like I am the victim of this random image that popped into my head to go get some grapes. All right, away we go. <laughs> so, so if I'm not going to be quite so neurologically metaphysical about it, then yeah, I can see where I can, where you could say I'm, you know, I am the thing that got injected into the equation, but personally I, I can't go there because to me, the very existence of myself and everything that I do is as much luck moment to moment as everything else. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking,
smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. So I have no problem, by the way, going into the neurologically metaphysical. I actually enjoy that space. Right. And what I find so interesting about this, and this is not a matter of um, my view of luck is right, your view of luck is wrong. I love the, the diverging viewpoints where there's so many similarities and we're looking at it from different perspectives. I don't, yeah, I don't even think they're diverging. I think it's just that I'm, in, you know, I'm injecting, let's say I'm injecting myself into the equation in a different place than you are. And I think that's what's so interesting is that you acknowledge the fact I have the good idea Mm -hmm. And I implement the good idea, but you don't take credit for it because you don't think you control it. And I'm curious where that comes from. Oh, no, it's even more. I don't even know if it's a good idea. So a thing that I, I say often when people are pitching me as a business person, as a marketing person, people are pitching me on something that they say is going to improve our business. And I say, look, I have a lot of opinions. I've been doing this a long time. I've been an internet marketer for over 30 years. Um, I have lots and lots and lots of opinions. But because I've been an internet marketer for over 30 years, I just don't get what any of them are. I just want to see the data. I want to find out how quickly and cheaply can I discover if one of us has our heads up our asses. If I had the wrong idea or if you can't execute, I just want to find that out as fast and cheap as I can because I can't control the upside, but I can control how much risk I'm willing to accept, how much money I'm willing to spend to find out if it works or not. Uh, so does that change the question that you're asking? Uh, not necessarily, because what I'm really, and this actually brings up a whole new thread that I would love to dive into just about this idea. Um, and to kind of finish your sentence, you can tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but in order to do those things, to get the data as quickly as possible, you have to be willing to fail and fail quickly, which to me is a huge part of both entrepreneurship, being creative. You just have to be willing to fail and fail fast. It's, um, I would argue that, that I got really, really good at that from doing standup because you're doing standup, either the joke works or it doesn't. And you can, you know, have an opinion about whether it works or not. You can work it out. You can try to make it work. You can try different audiences. You can do all these different things, but at a certain point you go, ah, crap. I love that concept. And either I can't make it work or it's really just not funny. So there's a thing that, um, that especially new comics do when they do a joke and it doesn't get a laugh, they'll, you know, make the appropriate motion with their hand going over their head and go, Whoa. it's like, and those of us who've been doing it longer, we go, no, no, it's more like this. You know, your hand hits you in the forehead and then falls down. It's like, mm -hmm. they got it. It just wasn't funny. And so, and it takes years to get better at knowing when it's them versus when it's you. And it's almost always you. I, this is a fun tangent you'll enjoy. One night, a couple of us went to see, uh, Bill Hicks was in town in New York and he was doing two shows uh, one night somewhere in the village, I can't remember where. And so a bunch of us went. And so the first show just destroyed, completely destroyed. And between shows, he's hanging out with us. And he goes, the second show is about to start. And he goes, watch this. And he does the exact same material. And by the 20 minute mark, the audience left because they were screaming at him. They were so mad at him. Exact same material. He just did it with a slightly different attitude. And he didn't care that they all left. 
that was just fun for him to do it. And all of us were just in amazement, A, that he could do that, that he was willing to do that. But just the phenomenon of it, same jokes, same, really the same audience, but he just pissed them off instead of getting them on his side deliberately. Super, super fun. So there's a thing that happens with comics and I'm sure with other, with actors as well. In fact, I've, I've been watching a bunch of shows lately with people who've been acting for now, like, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, and they're not necessarily, they're certainly not stars. They're people who are possibly famous, um, but you can tell they're just in a different phase of their life. And this happens with comics where at a certain point, you just stop caring. You don't try to make it happen. You just do the job. You do the work and it does what it does. And that makes you better because you're more relaxed. You're more open to possibilities. You're more willing to try things. It just makes everything better. I remember at Dangerfields one night, the, the show that had happened for me, where for some reason, like on the second or third show of the night, I went, I don't care. I'm just tired. I'm whatever. I did the exact same act that I did two hours before, hundred times better because I just wasn't trying to make people laugh. People ask me now, I've been living in Colorado for almost 30 years. They say, do you go to comedy clubs? I say, no, I'm allergic to the stench of desperation. <laughs> so, um, so what the hell was the point of all of that? What was we the were point? talking about the, the, the idea of failure. And one thing oh, that I want yeah. to add to this also is that uh, like using this example of what Bill Burr did, in my mind, what he was doing was collecting data. Oh, this is Bill Hicks. What, what, yes. or, I'm sorry, Bill Hicks. Um, what, what version of my attitude produces this result? And he collected he data so he can get even better at that. He knew. That was what was so fun about it. He knew what he was doing. Um, and uh, that, I mean, it, that was just a blast. Like going up, you know, we've all bombed. We've all had that happen. Um, and you, you, you handle it however you handle it. Uh, I, had, I had one show, this was getting filmed for uh, national television. And they filmed me at Catch a Rising Star on a Saturday night, killed. They filmed me at a little weird club in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania the next night, couldn't buy a laugh. And, um, and, uh, that was fascinating. Did not make me happy. What happens with standup, you know, you, you just get over the waves being so high and low. It's like, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it's like, yeah, that's cool. Um, you know, you know, you're going to get over it. It's going to take a piece of chocolate, a slice of pizza, a drink of something, uh, you know, your boyfriend or girlfriend doing something. I mean, but you know, it'll be fine. Everyone goes through it. Um, so yeah, the, the, practice of setting yourself up for possible failure and then having actual failure. I mean, my God, one night, third show, Saturday night, club on Long Island. I'm, I'm supposed to close this show and um, I do whatever my opening bit was, gets nothing. I do the next bit, gets a little bit. As a, just as a hunch, I do the bit that I normally close with, like, you know, the standing O bit, it gets nothing. <laughs> I just look around and I look at the audience and go, well, that's the funniest thing I do. Good night. And I just walk off the stage <laughs> and the club owner is on the floor laughing because I mean, he's seen it happen to everybody. There's nothing you can do about it. So like, all right, I'm just not going to put anyone through the misery of it. We'll get out of here and have a drink. And it, it was a hoot. So yeah, that the practice of that, of being willing to let the data tell you what's true. It's not personal. You know, if you're like as, an, as a business person, I'm just trying to achieve the goal of making things work. 
if I'm attached to how it happens, then I'm, I'm dead in the water. All right, and I agree with all of that, but let me ask you this follow-up question. Whether I'm a budding entrepreneur, building a company, doing a startup, I'm a creative professional, writer, stand-up comedian, whatever it is, uh, no, it how, do you, how do you separate yourself from the failure? How do you go from, well, it's just the data and that's what happened versus I'm a bad comedian, I'm a bad writer, I shouldn't be a business person. How do you separate those two? Well, you know, that question is a variation of how do I know when to pull the plug and do something else? Which is also a very complicated question to answer. Yeah. Um, there is no good answer because any answer to that is again about trying to imagine some future and assuming that what you're imagining is accurate, which we know it isn't. I don't know. You know, there's a, there was a very, very financially successful stock trader who was asked, how did you become so rich? And his answer was, um, I sold too soon. I mean, he was really despondent. Um, so he didn't get the maximum amount of profit. And he was, that's all he could see was I sold too soon. And so uh, I, have, uh, I have a friend who is in this situation now. He quit a, corp, a very high paying corporate job to become a day trader. And he's made good money as a day trader. But after a year of doing this, he's going, it's just not fun. I'm not having a good time. And so he's going to go back into the corporate world. Sometimes, and now it's not like that was a, decision that he, or a realization that he had on day one and on day two, he's changing gears. It's a process that he's still going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. There's no shortcut to that. There's no simple answer. It's just one day it, it, it's going to be clear. And if you're lucky, it'll be, you know, before you've lost certain opportunities and there's still opportunities available. Look, my previous, uh, one of my previous companies, I invented the industry standard word process software for film and television writers, scriptware. Um, I had the opportunity to sell it. That opportunity fell apart when it turned out the buyer was um, a lying embezzler. Uh, and I didn't bail quickly enough. Now, th this is a, this is a, here's the interesting joke. I didn't bail quickly enough and I spent a bunch of money trying to resurrect things and spent a lot of money trying to resurrect things. If I had just cut bait sooner, you know, I would have been financially fine, no big deal, move on to the next thing, et cetera. The irony is in the intervening time, the Academy has called me and said, if you can resurrect this thing and get some market share, we want to give you a technical achievement Oscar. So I'm trying to do that until it becomes obvious that that's a stupid idea. And hopefully now I know what a stupid idea looks like more than I did then. So there, there are so many questions that are unanswerable. And how do I know when it's time to pull the plug is very high on the list. Well, one thing that I'll, I don't even know if it answers the same question, but it's kind of piggybacks on the, the general theme that we have somehow found throughout the course of this conversation. This is why I don't have questions, because if I had had a list of questions, this conversation would have been 10% as good. But I want to go back to this idea of happiness versus fulfillment. And I want to okay. use the example of your uh, corporate to day trader to I don't know for sure what makes the most sense, right? Yeah. Or let's use the, the example of getting a technical achievement Oscar. Yeah. If I were to win an Oscar or an Emmy or whatever, in that moment, is that going to make me happy? Of course, that's going to make me happy. That However, moment. that happiness doesn't lead to fulfillment. And I think perhaps what this uh, friend of yours that you mentioned found is that, yeah, I was making you know money in the, the corporate world and maybe I can try the day trading thing. And maybe you know he makes a certain amount of money on a certain trade or whatnot. That can create happiness in the moment. But it sounds like what he's really saying is the world of living in corporate America, the lunches, the process, the people I'm with, that's a more fulfilling way to use my time. No. What he's saying is that what he's doing as a day trader is less satisfying for the life that he wants to live. How is that different than uh, fulfilling? 
um, because what he's do, what he, the big decision, because he was not happy in, in the corporate world. He, the benefits were significant, made a lot of money, you know, had vacations, didn't have to work more than nine to five, didn't have to work weekends, et cetera, uh, allowed him to have his life. So right now he's, he really is on the one hand, um, weighing bad options and looking for the one that's less bad. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he's also reframing that first one and suddenly going, you know, now that I've been out of the corporate world and done the thing that I thought I was going to love, because he did, he, he was trading before. It's not like he just stopped and immediately started trading. He'd been trading successfully um, in his spare time and analyzing markets was his favorite thing to do. But now that it's his life, it's like, it ain't the same. And we all know this from lots of people in Hollywood have that same experience. Like now I'm, I'm making a living as a fill in the blank top of the line, bottom or above the, yeah, top or bottom, above, below. It's above the line. Yep. Thank you. I, I was getting them both in my head. You know, suddenly like the work is fulfilling, the getting the work and the dealing with the people that you have to deal with and the, et cetera, et cetera. It's like the, the business of it is not what you imagined and is not fulfilling. Those rare moments where you get the right people in the right room at the right time for the right project dreamy and intermittent reinforcement is powerfully addictive. But so he's at the point where he's reframing the corporate thing to be, you know what? The benefits that I got were really worth the bullshit part. I have a friend who was a corporate lawyer had the same thing. He was really sick of what he was doing. And then suddenly realized he was getting paid a lot of money for a job that allowed him to spend time with his family and to do the hobbies that he had. And then suddenly he just stopped. He's like, oh, it's okay. I was just bitching because I had some idea about the way it should be. And I wasn't acknowledging slash appreciating what I'm having now. Is that fulfilling? I don't know. It's not something I pondered because I don't know why it just, I haven't, I haven't thought about landing somewhere about what to do next. Let let me add on to it then. And it's so weird that we're having this in-depth conversation about this random person that nobody knows, but you, but obviously we're expanding this into more generalities, but could you say that perhaps the work itself wasn't fulfilling. We're talking about the corporate work and not the day mm-hmm. trading. The work itself isn't that fulfilling, but it's helping to facilitate a more overall fulfilling life. Correct. Correct. And he hadn't really, and he hadn't appreciated that when he was just in the corporate world, imagining how great, again, this imagined future where he'll be happy doing this thing that he imagines will make him happy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he actually got to experience it and went, oh, crap. Um, you know, people ask me why I got out of showbiz. And one of the reasons is that um, I was, especially doing comedy, uh, but I was doing other things too. I was just not enjoying uh, having my career decisions of mine made by people whom I didn't respect or who wouldn't treat me with a certain amount of, um, they wouldn't treat me like an adult. You know, like, hey, if the gig starts at seven, but you want me there at six just to make sure I'm there on time, don't, be, don't tell me that it starts at five because then I'll get there at four. And I got shit to do. And then they, you know, wouldn't hire me again because I just said, can you just treat me like an adult? Or, um, or one of my favorites, I uh, called a guy to get rebooked for a gig. Well, you didn't do so well the last time you we were here. It's like, oh, no, no, you're remembering wrong. I actually uh, was the middle act and, I, and the headliner couldn't follow me. And I know that because I used the tape of that show as my audition tape. So, uh, and, and then he goes, Oh yeah, I'm still not going to book you again. And I just was not interested in dealing with that kind of bad thinking and that kind of, um, you know, arbitrariness. So, and when, when an opportunity presented itself to do something where it wasn't, where that just wasn't a lifestyle that I enjoyed, 
I, I loved the work. I loved my friends. There's nothing better than hanging out with a room full of comics, but the, but it wasn't conducive to um, a life that I could see that was going to be continue to be enjoyable. Right. And one of the things that I have found, and I kind of simultaneously discovered this myself, and as I'm sure you've has happened to you before as well, you discover something and then you realize somebody else also discovered the same thing and has written three books about yeah. it. You just didn't know they wrote three books about it, right? So yeah, no yeah. ideas original and we all this collective conscious. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. But what, what, what I've really found for myself, and again, I've discovered that somebody has written about it wildly and that uh, writer is Mark Manson. But it's not the idea that as you become more successful or you make more money or you build more prestige, whatever it is, it's not that your life has less problems, it's that the problems in your life change. Are different. Yeah. And, and they're different. Yeah. And for me, I'm living a fulfilling life if I'm solving problems that I I enjoy solving. My day is nothing but problems from the time I wake up to the time that I go to sleep. But man, do I love solving these problems. It is so much fun to solve these problems. That to me is a fulfilling use of my time, yeah, yeah. which is why I choose to do what I'm doing where there's a lot of unknowns and fear of the future and yeah. building a business. You never know what's going to happen next. I know exactly what my life looks like for 30 years if I'm nice. going to be in film and television editor because I'm very good at it. I right. know I can reliably pay my bills and I can make more money and work on more prestigious projects. I know where I'll be when I'm 60. And that terrifies me because it's not a fulfilling use of my time because I'm helping somebody else to achieve their own vision. That's what I do as a mm. storyteller. Mm. You have a vision. I'm going to help you achieve it. But now as an entrepreneur, I get to achieve my own vision and it's scarier, but the time is more fulfilling to me. I, I totally, totally get that. I think the simplest thing I can say in response is I just haven't pondered it from that angle. Or if I have, I certainly haven't in the last X number of years when I've been, you know, nose the grindstone, balls the wall with zero shoes um, and haven't had time to really ponder that. I mean, the closest thing, <laughs> what you said that made me think of is I have a line. I go, anyone who says money can't buy happiness hasn't driven my car. And um, <laughs> I love uh, it. All these one-liners are great. <laughs> and, and my car, I've got a, a supercharged Subaru BRZ. It doesn't come supercharged. I did that. And it's, um, it's not a very expensive car. It's very pretty and it's super fun to drive. And, uh, you know, there, there are simple things that I find really pleasant. I really enjoy driving that car. I don't enjoy driving behind people who go, go below the speed limit. That's uh, that ain't fun. And I've, and I've made a whole practice out of not getting, uh, more upset than is necessary about that. And uh, part of it is, you know, paintball, not really, but, um, the fulfillment thing, it's an interesting thing. There are parts of what I'm doing that I find very satisfying. There are parts that I find very frustrating and unpleasant because they're requiring me to use parts of my brain or, uh, uh, for certain amounts or for certain, certain amounts of time or certain amount, certain things that are not my favorite thing to do. And I'm, and the company's just growing so quickly that I don't have the luxury of only doing the parts that I really like in part, because like I mentioned, I've been an internet marketer for a long time. I do this stuff really, really well, finding someone else who can do it well. And I found someone, it's still going to take six months to get that person up to speed. And so, um, so I'm, we're in this, you know, it's been this perpetual transition because we've just been growing so quickly for the last nine years. And, uh, and that part is not satisfying in many, many ways, but the reason for what we're doing is so important that I don't care. And I don't make a big deal out of it. I mean, I'm kind of whining about it now. I don't think there's something wrong that this is what I'm experiencing. I don't add a, a derivative layer of, you know, self-flagellating or thinking that it should be, or I'll be happy when it's just like right now, 
you know, this is a week where until tomorrow night, I will go home at the end of every day, mentally exhausted in a way that I don't find enjoyable, <laughs> but, um, but it's not a big deal. That's just, you know, comes with the program at the moment. So be it. And my wife and I have done something for the first time in our lives. Uh, that's a hell of an opening line. Um, we got a dog. And so when I get home and the dog is wagging his tail so hard that he can barely stand, then everything's fine for the next 20 minutes anyway. So um, no, why didn't anyone tell me that? I mean, they could have told me that before. Uh, I mean, having this dog, he weighs 33 pounds, having this dog fall asleep and putting him on my chest while we're lying on the couch. Why didn't anyone tell me that it's the greatest thing in the world? So I have, a, I have one final question that could either be a two minute answer or a four hour answer. We're going to find out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a very, very common piece of advice that has been floating around probably since the beginning of modern mankind, but very definitely, much recently. Definitely uh, wrong. Yeah, so I'm, 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 we already know that it's wrong, but the, the, <laughs> it's floated around specifically in the world of entrepreneurship and very much for people that are creative. Okay. You just need to follow your passion. <laughs> Why? Um, well, look, if your passion is doing underwater basket weaving, um, well, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to answer. Hold on a second. Did wait, you wait, just wait. use the example of underwater basket weaving? Cause that's my example. And I use that all the time. <laughs> that's crazy. I always use that as my example. Well, how is that possible? Uh, we're, we're now finding out we were separated. That's insane. Cause I use that example all the time. Like, listen, I, if you want to be an I underwater don't. basket weaver, this system still works. I, I uh, that's crazy. But anyway, go ahead. I didn't mean so, to interrupt, but that was too crazy to not mention. So I, I love it. So there's two answers to this question, but it goes back to something you brought up earlier. It's like, you know, why are you doing it? What do you think, quote, success is? If you're totally happy getting underwater, weaving baskets, and you don't care if you have enough money to get food tomorrow, or assuming that you aren't living, well, if you're underwater, you can probably just grab a fish and you're fine. So <laughs> if you literally are finding that things that you need for this fulfillment thing that you're talking about are not being met and have no way of being met as far as you can tell, as far as you can tell, then, uh, then I don't care if you're passionate about underwater basket weaving. There's no guarantee that doing something you're passionate about will generate the other things that you want in your life to be content or feel fulfilled. And unfortunately, there's always going to be some example that someone's going to hold out as the proof that maybe it can work. And again, there's so many places to go with this. You may find it's not what you think. You know what I'm thinking of? Remember Zomfir, the master of the pan flute? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he became mind-blowingly successful by putting out pan flute CDs and selling them on TV. And ironically, it ruined him because he says, when I go to do concerts, I'm trying to share traditional pan flute. And all they want to hear me do is the pan flute version of, you know, Broadway tunes. He was miserable. So, but, you know, you're going to look at Zomfir and go, oh, I love the pan flute. I can be Zomfir. Guess what you can't be? Zomfir. People say, let's look at uh, Bill Gates or let's look at Steve Jobs or let's look at Richard Branson as examples of entrepreneurs. Guess how many Steve Jobs, Bill Gates and Richard Branson's there are? One of each. No one has ever gone to a workshop with any of those guys and end up being the next one of those guys. And if they did, they've done something completely different. Back when I was actually coaching people on some business things, I remember teaching people everything I knew about internet marketing. And each one of them, thinking of five people, each one took out one piece of what I did and did that really well and made a bunch of money doing it. And they will tell you that what the other four did doesn't work. Didn't work for them. 
worked for one of those other four people. So this, again, the, the follow your passion is just a variation of do what you love and the money will follow, which again, no one actually read, which is, yeah, do what you love. But then, uh, you know, it's a, is it a Sufi thing? Um, trust everyone, but tie your camel to the post. You know, it's not a one or the other thing. It's a false dichotomy to think that, that you can only do this thing that you're passionate about and everything else will be fine. Do what you love and, you know, tie your camel to the post. But that idea and the do what you love and the money will follow has just caused more stress for more people because they think that the math is do the thing you love and you'll make money doing the thing you love and you'll be happy doing the thing you love and you won't have to deal with the bullshit that goes along with doing what you love successfully. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tricky one. Again, I got to tell you, like, I hate when people say, uh, use the phrase I'm passionate about. It, it just sounds a little twee. It just sounds, you know, it's a little self-aggrandizing, patting yourself on the back, kind of like whatever. If you're, if you love doing something, if you find it really enjoyable, the word passionate has just taken a certain flavor. It's just a little saccharine. You know, I have people talk to me about what I'm doing and they say, you're passionate about it. It's like, no, no, no. I have reasons that I'm compelled to do the things that I do and parts that I really like and parts that I don't like. It's not a passionate is not uh, a concept that I judge anything against. I don't have a passionate yardstick. It's just not, I don't give it any mind. It's not part of my lexicon. So if there's something that you really love, awesome, knock yourself out. And if your life is falling apart as a result, you might want to find a way to do what you, this thing that you love and get your shit together. People used to say to me, what happens if it all goes wrong? And I go, I'm going to get a job at Quiznos. They go, what? I go, or I'll go to Baja, California and just, you know, get fish. They go, what? I go, my, my fallback plan is being completely broke. I mean, I'm cool with being completely live on the street broke because I know what I would do then. I would ask people, I was, when I was, this is going to sound weird. When I was living in New York city, I got a paper cut on my eyeball one day, long story, not important. And what I found was that, um, I was patched up. They put patches on both my eyes. Cause if I moved my eyes, it would hurt very bad. And being blind in New York, it was the most exquisite experience of my life. Cause I couldn't get two steps out of my front door before someone offered to help me. And when I wasn't in that situation, when I wasn't blind, I then realized that if I had needed something, I could ask for help. I could literally, you know, you call it begging if you want. I could walk up to a stranger and say, I'm hungry. Can you help me? And if they said no, I would just ask somebody else. I don't care. And sometimes, and one person said yes. They said, uh, actually, one person said something really funny. They said, why don't you go to the, instead of asking me, why don't you go to that restaurant? That's where they make the food. <laughs> so I go to that restaurant. It was a burger place. I was a vegan. I said, I'm hungry. Can you help me? And the guy looks at me and just looks at me and keeps looking at me. And I'm thinking he hasn't answered yes or no yet. So I'm going to wait till he gives me an answer. And then kind of shakes his head and goes, ah, sit down over there. I'll give you something. So I sit down and he comes back with a double bacon cheeseburger. I hadn't eaten meat in like 20 years. I was crying as I ate it because I was so grateful. The taste was not to my liking. The guy just gave me nourishment because I asked and he was kind enough to say yes. That's my fallback plan. So what do I got to lose? Nothing. 
Well, other than your identity, which kind of brings us back full circle to the very beginning of the conversation, which is why it's easy for you is because you're not attached to a certain identity. I love the idea that I would go to my 50th high school reunion and somebody would say, you know, so uh, what are you doing with your life? And I would go Quiznos. They go, oh, you own like some franchises? No, no, I'm making the sandwiches. (laughs) Just let it hang there. Yeah, you want to talk about a level of confidence that few of us uh, will ever understand or attain. (laughs) Uh, That's that's pretty awesome. So this this would be the point in the show where I would uh, discuss and do a little bit of uh, promotion for you and talk about my passion for zero shoes, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want to have passion for zero shoes because that's not a yardstick by which you can measure the world. So instead, I want to talk about my excitement with zero shoes and make it so you don't have to plug yourself. And I want to tell a very, very quick story and then be very respectful of your time because I know how important that time is. And you said, this is how long you get me present. Then I got other to do. So I totally get that. (laughs) But I spent several years evangelizing the toe shoes, the barefoot Vibram five fingers. And the philosophy of them, very similar to yours, which is minimalist shoe that allows you to use the technology of the human body to realign yourself and strengthen all those muscles that are weakened and not have all the cushioning. All of it was great, except for they look effing stupid. And every time I'd walk into the office, people are like, well, that's kind of ridiculous that you were. And then I'd give them the whole speech about why and like whatever. They're like, yeah, that's great. I'm never going to do that. You solved my problem. (laughs) which is that I have exactly the same technology that's allowing me to essentially feel like I'm barefoot, but these shoes look awesome. And the other thing that I love about them so much that even Vibram never figured out is the granular level of functionality between the different models. Mm -hmm. So it was, I either had regular shoes before, or I had the Vibrams. Now I have six pairs of zero, all of which are different based on the functionality, based on like, I've got a pair of the the sandals that are about as minimal as it gets. I've got a pair of very minimal uh, shoes, the HFSs that I use for like ninja training and stuff where I don't need a lot of cushion. I've got the, uh, the Zellens, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, I've got the Zellens are my new favorites. I actually bought two of those, one of which for training uh, and one of which just because the the all black ones, they look like dress shoes. But I'm still barefoot, except when I used to go in any kind of dressy situation in like the five finger shoes, it's like, who is this guy? Right now, nobody even cares. Like, oh, there's some nice shoes. Where'd you get them? It's like, oh, they're barefoot shoes. They're what? Then it's the whole conversation. Um, So I just, I wanted to sing your praises and just let anybody know that's listening that these are legit. This is not a gimmick. This is a very, very high quality product that by the way, even though are minimal, I've run 10 mile Tough Mudders and Spartan races in rocks and water and everything else. They still hold up and they're indestructible. Well, everything's destructible, but I get your point and I appreciate it. Um, Thank you. I mean, that's what, again, that's what gets us going. That's what keeps us moving. We just had a product meeting this morning. The stuff we're planning for uh, next fall, spring, next fall, next spring is, you know, spectacular. I couldn't be more excited. And um, it's stories like yours, again, that keep everybody in this company, of which there are now 70 people, um, coming back every morning to help more people have that experience. And as I like to say, live life feet first. Well, I appreciate uh, so much all the insights that you shared with us today. Um, I really feel like we've kind of sort of warmed up and we really haven't gotten to the heart of the conversation. We can do this for another three hours. Um, But I know how important your time and your calendar are to you. And I want to respect the fact that we are at uh, the end of our conversation, but cannot thank you enough for anybody that's interested in learning more just about you, your journey, or specifically, and obviously your shoes. How do they do that? Um, other than stalking me, I would recommend not doing that and instead go to zero shoes, X-E-R-O shoes.com. Or if your spell check or autocorrect puts a Z in the beginning, that's okay. It'll still get to us or Smart, on media, the redirect. It does. It's a redirect long story about that. Um, then otherwise you can find us on social. We're at zero shoes or slash zero shoes, wherever you happen to at or slash. 
And uh, as somebody that's done internet marketing for a while, it's clear that you know how to do social media because your social media is actually entertaining and informative and educational. And it doesn't feel like I'm just being spit at with a bunch of uh, products and I need to buy them. Well, that's very kind. I'll pass it on to the team that I have that I'm working with to do that. And we're always trying to make that better too. So, but much of, dude, this has been a complete pleasure. And yeah, if we, you know, if you want to do V2, you know where to find me. All right. Well then uh, we'll, we'll talk about that offline, but uh, thank you so much for uh, your time today. And that maybe there will be a version two in the future. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even going to send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.